Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. So we've got a great interview on deck for you today, but as a primer, I would suggest everyone go back and listen to Economics 101. It is the most listened to episode in our podcast history by far. And what we're going to talk about today is an elaboration on that topic featuring an economist from the College of New Jersey, Dr. Donald Vandegrift. This was a very wide-ranging conversation that we recorded just before the passage of Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. We touch on topics such as U.S. debt, politics, capitalism versus socialism, and what we have to look forward to with the new Biden administration. So without further ado, let's get underway on Economics 201. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Cadena Podcast. So, Don, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. Yeah, it's always good catching up. I, I just love hearing about economics, and some people might find it strange, but to me it is always fascinating. I'm glad to hear that. I don't always get that reaction. <laughs> what do you do? Do you find some of your students uh, just kind of care us about the topic or what's maybe the first thing you do to kind of stimulate some of that interest? Well, when you when you uh, bring up the topic, I'm just thinking about random strangers that I run into uh, uh, on airplanes and the like. Uh, and uh, invariably, the topic comes up uh, about occupations. And uh, I, I tell them I'm a college teacher. And the next uh, question is almost always, well, what do you teach? Uh, and I, I, I tell them uh, e economics. And, and uh, uh, following that usually is silence. So, so <laughs> I, I've often thought about uh, trying some other discipline like uh, history or English or electrical engineering uh, to yeah. see whether uh, I get more of a reaction. Yeah, that might be a good exercise to see kind of how people uh, come back to you on that. Uh, I assume getting into rocket science or something like that could be interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always a risk that they know more about the topic than uh, me and uh, my cover is blown immediately. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I always tell people when we talk about economics, it could be anything from that, that conversation you have with your roommates of like, should we order pizza tonight or go out for steaks? You know, it, it's almost like an economic decision of, well, is it worth the price we're going to pay for one experience over another? And I've always thought it's cool how you can take it from such a, a micro level all the way up, of course, to macroeconomics like we'll talk about today. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, uh, it's hard to uh, think of an interesting public policy question that isn't really at its base an economics uh, uh, question. Yeah, it's true. I think it invades every aspect of life and every aspect of politics as well. And that might be a good starting point for us today, because one of the things a lot of my clients even bring up to me is the talk about debt. So just to share some figures with our, our listeners today, right now, our national debt here in America stands at just under $28 trillion, um, just a monumental figure that I think a lot of people struggle to even say, you know, 
well, is it 28, 26, 30? Like, what's the difference? And you're seeing now amidst, you know, the COVID pandemic, there's been stimulus packages, you know, about to be another $1.9 trillion stimulus that may go through. Can you maybe just break down in layman's terms uh, for our listeners? What does that mean when we keep adding to the debt? What's the possible result of that? Well, uh, some of that debt is held by the government itself, in which case it's uh, just an accounting entry. Okay. Some of that debt is uh, held by uh, American citizens, in which case uh, the, the, uh, the debt is uh, a redistribution uh, from uh, the uh, taxpayers uh, back to the debt holders. And sometimes uh, the debt is uh, held by foreigners, in which case uh, uh, we have to pay off uh, uh, the, these uh, amounts uh, using future production, which uh, can make us worse off uh, down the road. Okay. And each of these elements is growing a little bit. There's been less focus on the debt just because uh, each political party now, or, or I should say neither political party, uh, sees much electoral traction in raising the issue. Hmm. Uh, we should be concerned, uh, but uh, people often think about government debt in the same way that they think about household debt. Yeah. And uh, you don't want to do that. Again, so, for the reasons that I've uh, just brought up, right? Some is held by the government and the government can always uh, uh, do what we call uh, monetize the debt. That is, they just simply print money uh, to mm -hmm. pay off the debt. They can always raise taxes, at least to a certain degree, to pay off the debt. Uh, all sorts of options that uh, your typical uh, uh, household in the U.S. does not have. So I, I suppose like one of those elements you mentioned that American citizens hold a decent amount of that debt, I assume in the form of treasuries and whatnot. So are you saying that that, that piece of the pie is perhaps not as threatening or worrisome because it's kind of just staying in, in our house, if you will? As a footnote to the conversation on debt, according to the U.S. Treasury of the $28 trillion of total debt, Approximately $6 trillion is owed to other federal agencies, with Social Security being the largest owner of roughly $3 trillion. The remaining $21 trillion is split amongst the public, one-third to foreign governments, with actually Japan being the largest holder, just over China, and the other two-thirds belonging to banks and investors. That's my view of it. Yes. Uh, it, now, I wouldn't say that you'd never want to worry about the debt at all, uh, because uh, you want the, the U.S. government to be able to borrow at low rates if, uh, if they ever default. Uh, the, uh, the cost of borrowing uh, to finance a deficit will go way up. That is, the government will have to pay higher interest rates, and therefore uh, the taxpayers will have to bear that burden. So there are costs, there are risks, um, but it's easy to misunderstand those risks because uh, people typically draw the analogy to a household. Got it. That's good to point out. And so you mentioned our own government was another one of those elements that, that holds a lot of that debt. So 
in that sense, can you maybe explain what that means? Because I'm sure some folks out there are saying, well, we're issuing debt and holding that debt ourselves like that. It does yeah. sound on the surface a little confusing. The biggest chunk of debt that I'm aware of, and I'm not an expert on this topic, uh, is uh, held by the, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States. And uh, one of the primary ways that uh, the, uh, the Fed, as it's often called, uh, uh, conducts uh, monetary policy is uh, by uh, uh, purchasing debt issued by the treasury. So people often uh, confuse the, uh, the roles of the treasury with the, the role of the Federal Reserve Bank of the US. Uh, the role of the treasury is to finance the operations of the government. So anytime the government spends more than it takes in in taxes, uh, then uh, the treasury has to issue debt to cover that shortfall. Of course, uh, part of the treasury is the IRS. But uh, the central bank is responsible for the, uh, the conduct of the uh, monetary policy and the good health of the banking system. And in order to conduct monetary policy, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of the US uh, uh, both uh, buys and sells uh, US uh, government debt. And uh, while the actual transaction that they undertake to do that is a little bit complex, they're basically printing up the money to buy the debt. Okay. So they, they kind of just create money as people think like out of thin air to then buy that debt. And then does the treasury essentially issue more debt eventually to pay that off? Well, the, the treasury only issues debt when there's a shortfall between uh, the uh, revenues that the government collects and what the government spends. Uh, and okay. in fact, uh, because uh, around the world there's a bit of a savings glut, uh, there's uh, excess demand uh, for low-risk uh, debt issued by places like uh, the U.S. government. Uh, so uh, some have argued that uh, one of the forces that uh, brought about the 2008 recession was a desire for more low-risk debt. And uh, the financial sector figured out a way to create this low-risk debt by securitizing mortgages. And you're probably closer to this than I am. Yeah. That is, uh, we'll, we'll take a pool of mortgages and then we'll slice up the revenues that, uh, that follow uh, from these debt issues and uh, create a hierarchy where yeah. uh, the highest uh, debt holders in that hierarchy uh, will get uh, low interest rates, but uh, they'll be at the front of the line to assume any uh, uh, revenues that come in in payments uh, for those, uh, uh, those mortgages that were issued that, that uh, support the restructured debt mm -hmm. or the securitized debt. So yep, there's yeah, a lot of demand for this uh, and interest rates around the world are, are historic lows. 
uh, and that's probably part of uh, what's driving the uh, lack of concern uh, about uh, the level of debt. Okay, interesting. So a few factors there, and I know getting into the causes of 2008 it, are quite complex, and especially those mortgage products amidst the subprime mortgage crisis were also fairly complex with the derivatives that went into that. Um, right, right. Uh, you could do uh, a series of uh, podcasts <laughs> on, on just that topic. You're right. Certainly, certainly. But fast forwarding to where we are today. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's that America is seen as a safe haven, if you will, of the world, the global economy, and we've never defaulted on our national debt. And so is America in a position where they can say, you know, yes, we have just an enormous amount of debt but we're still kind of the, the king of the jungle so we can keep interest rates where we want them to be and people will still come to us for that debt. I, I think that uh, that statement is largely true. I don't wanna say that there are no risks, uh, but uh, certainly we don't face the uh, risk of a developed uh, or of a less developed country that's forced to issue debt that's denominated in uh, uh, dollars or the currency of some other country. Okay. That is, uh, it, as long as we're issuing debt in dollars, we, we have the, the ability to inflate away the debt. Okay. By simply and, printing money. Correct. And, and sticking with that term inflation, that's what most people initially think is, okay, if we're creating a tremendous amount of debt, and then we're just printing money to monetize that, isn't the, the knee-jerk reaction to that inflation, which we haven't really seen in recent memory. Yes, uh, uh, exactly right. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people uh, have been uh, puzzled, myself included, about uh, the failure of uh, inflation. Uh, not to put you on the hot seat, if I can, but, and I know you said you've been puzzled, and I am too. That's why I was hoping to pose the question is, why haven't we had inflation? Like, what's taking so long? And when is it going to come about if we're mm -hmm. staring at what most people consider to be the natural cause of it? Uh, gee, uh, I, I, uh, I could only guess uh, that it's uh, at least in part uh, driven by uh, uh, the uh, savings glut, that okay. is uh, lack of demand that we see worldwide, uh, strategies, export-led growth strategies, uh, especially on the part of China, that is, uh, they, they uh, have... Uh, decided that uh, they want to keep their currency weak so as to make sure that uh, their exports are competitive worldwide. And that also helps keep uh, prices, uh, at least in, uh, uh, for some types of goods and services, down uh, a bit. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't have the complete answer. Okay. Yeah, there's, and there's, I know there's a lot of different ways we could kind of uh, go about this and speaking on different topics with China, you know, kind of manipulating their currency there. And, um, and, and if there's a, a question that's off topic, definitely feel free to interrupt. But 
that might be a good side note because so much of the Trump administration that we all just lived through was about this quote unquote trade war that uh, he was getting into with China of saying, okay, well, if you want to lower your currency, we'll slap tariffs onto your goods and try and create a more fair playing field. But if they want to lower their currency and kind of make their items cheap, what is the, the pitfall of that to, to China? Or it seems like they're kind of, uh, you know, hampering themselves to win a kind of, a, you know, to have more exports, but at the same time, devaluing their currency can't be all that good. Am I correct? Uh, well, uh, from the point of view of raising GDP, at least to this point, it seems like it's uh, been reasonably effective. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, difficult to second guess the strategies of a country that over the last uh, 20 years has grown on the order of about, I would say seven or 8%, maybe even more. And just to add another footnote here, according to the World Bank, China has had one of the fastest growing economies since they opened to foreign trade and investment in 1978. They have averaged a 9.5% annual GDP growth rate through 2018 and being coined, according to the World Bank, and I quote, the fastest sustained expansion by a major economy in history. Uh, so an a... enormous number of people in China have been uh, lifted out of poverty. Uh, the, the average citizen of uh, China is still... Uh, uh, far poorer than the average American, but compared to where they were in, say, 1988, uh, they're far better off, uh, even if it is, hmm, I think, uh, accurately described as a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So while they're doing kind of this currency manipulation that we might kind of uh, badmouth sometimes, it has been beneficial to their economy as a whole. It seems that way, yeah, although you know, there are distributional concerns in, in that uh, if they uh, depress uh, their currency, that means in particular, and then globalize. Uh, the elites do pretty well, but uh, the average uh, uh, Chinese uh, working in a factory experiences lower wages than they would otherwise. Uh, in real terms, and uh, can't buy uh, uh, American goods, in particular foodstuffs, at prices that they would be able to uh, uh, buy, uh, if not at, if not for the intervention. Got it. So they can't really import. Their money will not be so effective. They've got to depend on what they're truly independent in that sense. They got to depend on themselves to produce. Yeah, I, I think that there are growth and distribution implications uh, for this strategy for both uh, uh, China and the U.S. That is, when the Chinese adopt a, a growth uh, uh, oriented export led growth strategy, it also uh, displaces uh, uh, American workers. Mm -hmm. And it uh, tends to benefit uh, people in uh, rich uh, coastal cities uh, who capture a much larger 
share of the net benefits of trade. And, and I think that uh, that is one of the biggest sources of uh, conflict today in American politics. That is, uh, in particular, uh, the rules that govern global trade and migration. And uh, this is why even if uh, Donald Trump goes to jail or is banned from uh, uh, office in the future, uh, I think that uh, we will see some other uh, American politician, maybe somebody like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley uh, or uh, uh, Ron DeSantis try to take up that populist mantle. Because what Trump has shown is that this is a pretty strong coalition and the realignment that we, uh, we've seen in American politics, especially as the, uh, uh, the Republican Party has become uh, more populist since 2004. And of course, uh, the changes were larger since 2016. That, that's, uh, uh, that's likely to persist. Okay, so we haven't seen the last of this yet, is what we're saying. Uh, I, I think that, that uh, Trump dies, we will still have Trumpism. Yeah, that's well said. I think that that could be very true. And, and we're, we're seeing in, in other, I, I, the other bit of evidence that I would bring up here in this connection is that we're seeing this in Europe too, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of issues at stake in Brexit are essentially the, uh, uh, the main conflict points in uh, US uh, politics. That is uh, uh, the rules of global trade and migration were what fueled the Brexit vote. And uh, the, uh, all the leave vote was in places out of uh, London and uh, the cities that had uh, large university populations. And you see the same thing in, in the U.S. Uh, data. That is, uh, uh, I think in this last election, uh, Joe Biden won about 17 percent, a little bit less than 17 percent of the vote by if we look at it by county. What does that mean? Uh, but uh, he won all the population centers. So all of the Democratic vote is... Uh, concentrated in these wealthy areas. So 70% of uh, GDP comes from the counties that uh, went uh, for Biden. Hmm. Uh, and is that just because they're, they're urban areas, that they're cities? Is they're that they're richer, they're more educated, and, and uh, they're reaping uh, more of the gains of uh, trade, and uh, migration under the prevailing rules. And uh, it's these other areas, smaller cities, cities uh, uh, rural locations, manufacturing centers outside of the, uh, the affluent cities uh, that are dissatisfied and voting against the status quo. Huh. So, and that's interesting that you brought that up because it seems contradictory if I'm hearing you correctly that more of the affluent areas went Democrat. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But is that, yeah. is that misleading in a sense where you're saying, okay, it's an affluent area because it's a city with, you know, a large economy. Um, but perhaps, you know, just the, the bulk of that economy lies in the hands of a few where, you know, a large percentage of those urban populations are not affluent and that they were the democratic votes. Like, yeah, I think this is why you're largely seeing a lot of uh, talk uh, about race. Okay. From How Democrats. So? Right. So, for instance, uh, a prototypical statement here is uh, a Biden statement to, to Black Americans that they're going to put you all back in chains, speaking about the Republicans. Mm hmm. And the Republicans at the same time are uh, working hard. And this is, I guess, one of the success stories uh, for the Republican Party in, uh, in the last election uh, to raise their vote totals among uh, Black and Hispanic voters. And, and in fact, uh, in 2020, the Republican Party, or Trump in particular, uh, captured a higher share of uh, African American and the Hispanic vote uh, than any election since 1960. A and uh, here, what you're seeing, I think, is uh, a battle between the race-based appeals of the Democrats to these voters and uh, the populist appeals uh, to these same voters by Republicans. That is, uh, the Republicans' populist appeals uh, are based on uh, uh, arguments about the trade agreements and how they hurt American workers and uh, the way that uh, uncontrolled migration uh, may hurt American workers. Okay. And so that uh, there's a little bit of truth to each party's claims and they're battling it out in the public sphere. And it's so, it's, it's so hard to, to almost grasp that because it's like you can hear the statistics that you just alluded to. But then I think that the general understanding by the population is not always in line with what these statistics are. You know, I, you said that that Trump in 2020 captured a larger share of the, the black and Hispanic vote than any Republican in history. Well, since 1960, I, I think sorry, prior since... to 1960, uh, the data uh, on that count is probably not that good. Uh, yeah. But uh, I read at least in two different reliable sources that uh, since 1960, he had uh, the, the largest share of uh, the black and Hispanic vote uh, to a Republican candidate. So he did far better than Mitt Romney or, or George uh, W. Uh, Bush or George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah, and it's, that's what I'm saying. I can believe that. And, and if you look at the stats of how, you know, black unemployment had hit record lows and things of that nature pre-pandemic, it makes sense. But then when you hear and you see what's on the news every night of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and some of the, um, the narrative out there, who would have ever think that, that Trump even did remotely well with Blacks mm -hmm. and Hispanics? So it's funny that there is that, well, not funny, but there is that disconnect there that doesn't quite add up. 
um, which I think is why there should be almost a referendum on people just looking at statistics and not so much the opinions and the noise out there. Well, uh, we, we've always had complaints about news coverage. Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, and this is probably uh, a, uh, another topic that uh, might uh, extend into six or seven uh, episodes. And the yeah. changes in, in uh, US media over the last 20 years with the advent of the internet. Sure, uh, yeah, that's a, a whole lot other of, animal. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of news gathering in smaller cities like uh, uh, Des Moines or Dallas or Lincoln, Nebraska. The, the, uh, the news gathering has been essentially hollowed out and uh, all the news gathering is a current hosts. So it's these uh, um, uh, uh, newspapers like New York Times, the LA Times, uh, Washington Post and still the to do news gathering. That is uh, to launch a, say a six month investigation into criminal activity at the US Department of the Treasury uh, isn't something a newsroom in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska can do anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, th that is a whole nother episode there of how media as a whole yeah. has changed. Um, and maybe if I can, and that's a great point, but if I can bring us back to that initial question that we started today's episode, which yeah. was <laughs> this, this debt that I, I kind of brought up as almost spiraling out of control, but then you were able to clarify that perhaps it's not spiraling out of control. It's just a larger and larger number. Yeah, well, I would but, say, yeah, for instance, you shouldn't be uh, uh, unconcerned about it. Uh, and you haven't seen uh, much news coverage of this, I think, because of the, uh, uh, the populist shift in the Republican Party. That is, uh, the Republican Party uh, uh, used to be uh, the party of uh, uh, fiscal probity. Uh, they were uh, controlled by... Uh, your uh, typical uh, country club grower, a goer uh, in a place like Connecticut. Uh, that is when I was a youth, uh, the average Republican voter was uh, far more affluent and educated than the average Democratic voter. That's no longer true. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, the, uh, the Republican party and this is one of the things Trump campaigned on was that uh, we're not going to touch Social Security and we're not going to touch Medicare. So, so th these are statements that uh, somebody like uh, George W. Bush would have never made. He wanted to privatize some of these things to save money. Yeah. And uh, that sort of uh, campaign statement disappeared. I think in part because of this uh, realignment that is uh, the, uh, the Republican party is now much more populist. It, that's an excellent point. And I wanted to, to maybe to, to bring that home is if we look at the largest items that make up that debt 
that uh, that we referenced. It's almost $28 trillion. If we look at the largest budget items, and this is according to the Congressional Budget Office, number one is Medicare and Medicaid. Number two, not far, far behind that, is Social Security. And then the third line item, which is pretty far between those first, before, behind those first two, would be uh, defense spending. Mm-hmm. So if Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security are the two elephants in the room, I mean, how is that? Is that a, first off, is that a problem? And if it is, how can that possibly be addressed? Because I agree that that's something that kind of the fiscal responsible conservative would say, we've got to rein that in. And then you had Trump run as a Republican saying, don't worry about it. We're not even going to touch that, uh, which seems kind of counter to that old school Republican mentality of possibly privatizing some of these things. Uh, Can you maybe just speak to that point of those three big items, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Mm. and defense? Uh, Should they be fixed or is it perfectly fine to kind of leave those moving as they are? Well, uh, when the government, uh, the U.S. government is able to to borrow cheaply uh, because of a savings glut and uh, we have uh, a recession fueled by a pandemic, uh, the uh, the logic for higher taxes and or lower benefits, were, which are really the only two routes to fixing the problem, is uh, uh, not as strong as a world in which uh, the uh, pandemic has receded as a threat and the and uh, the unemployment rate has. Uh, Returned to 3.8 percent, and uh, the uh, the global s- savings glut has uh, has uh, diminished. Uh, so I think longer term, yeah, we're probably going to have to address it. Uh, although it's hard to say for sure because it all depends on how long uh, global interest rates stay low, and how long uh, uh, people are willing to buy U.S. Treasury debt at essentially zero interest rates. Hmm. And it's it, it, on the, the global savings gut, which glut, excuse me, which you mentioned a couple of times here as what's allowing a, a lot of this low interest debt. Can you explain what that means that there's a, a global savings glut? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, if we just look at households, are are we saving that much more? Or does it have that big of an impact? And a lot of people would argue, you know, interest rates are so low, people are feeling forced almost to put their money into the markets, which has fueled, you know, such a market boom over the past several years. So where where is this the savings, I guess, where everyone's just saying, you know, we want to park our money somewhere safe right now? Is that yeah. on a government level or where is where is all of that? No, it's on a national level. And, and any time you have groups of people or nations that produce more than they consume, that by definition produces saving in a macroeconomic okay. sense. Okay, so we're, we're overproducing so in a way? And so if you make goods expensive or if you, for instance, uh, uh, the Chinese don't have a very well-developed uh, uh, retirement system, which means that uh, they save a lot more uh, because uh, they can't 
count on a system like we have in the US where the current generation of workers finances uh, the retirement uh, of the current generation of retirees. Okay. And so when uh, the production exceeds uh, the consumption, the money's got to go somewhere. And uh, a lot of it has come to, to the U.S. and has bought uh, safe treasury debt. Okay. Okay. Got it. I, I, think, I think we're following that now. And maybe to um, wrap up this conversation on, on debt, which it could be just a series of episodes, like we said, one of the last statistics that I found eye-opening from, again, the Congressional Budget Office is if we look the, at the debt to GDP ratio, so the debt to gross domestic product, in 1960, debt to GDP was 53%. In 1980, it was 34%. In the year 2000, it was 59%. And now in 2021, it's 130%. Mm -hmm. Just looking at that trend right there, it seems alarming. And maybe to, to conclude on this, is it or is it somehow that, uh, what, what is your take, I guess, on that figure? I think there's a, a, a famous uh, a quote from, uh, I wanna say Ben Stein, is that uh, uh, things that are unsustainable won't go on forever or something uh, uh, along those lines. Uh, uh, and, and of course, it, it, uh, it can't uh, keep rising, but uh, you're probably aware that uh, the debt to GDP ratio uh, was uh, also very high when uh, we emerged from the Second World War. Okay. And, and then it, it came down over the course of the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, and uh, some of this uh, rise... Uh, though I would argue clearly not all of it, uh, is uh, uh, attributable uh, to the, uh, the aging of the baby boomers, which uh, causes some temporary changes in the ratio of uh, current retirees to current workers, that as that ratio rises. And uh, that makes it uh, harder uh, to finance the, the retirement and medical care obligations uh, that, as you pointed out, are uh, the largest chunk of the U.S. budget. And so that uh, some of this is fed by uh, that demographic bubble. And uh, when the, the, uh, the baby boomers uh, are... Uh, all passed from this world, uh, we, we should see uh, uh, some reduction in the problem. But uh, the other thing that's happening is that uh, people uh, are living longer. They're not retiring any later. And so that the years in retirement uh, are rising and without increases in productivity, uh, the increases in the ratio of current retirees to current workers are going to lead to either higher taxes or lower benefits. And yeah. there's no way around it. Okay. And that's, that's really what I wanted, not necessarily to hear, but to get at, because it seems like, you know, the economic term, there is no free lunch and you can 
point to cases of folks who retire, um, perhaps at 55, and through Social Security and pensions uh, that they're collecting, they very well may collect more money not working in retirement than they did in their years working. And that math doesn't seem to add up there. And so you mentioned that the outcome is either to reduce those benefits at some point or to raise taxes. Uh, right now, neither of those is really being done. So the method to address that would be this issuance of more debt you know, to cover these bills. Yeah, I, I would you know, say, uh, Brian, generally speaking, you're correct. Uh, but you should be aware that uh, uh, they have raised retirement ages. So for instance, uh, I'm a 57-year-old man. I can't retire uh, with full benefits until I'm 67. So exactly. You're referring to Social Security? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think that that number edges up in the legislation to something like 70, although I'd have to double check. And so that uh, you may not be able to, uh, uh, to retire with full benefits until you're 68 or 69. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. And, and so that is a, a method, I suppose, of seeing some of these reduced benefits that are built into that program, which pensions, which are kind of like a microcosm of that, have made some adjustments in that same vein where um, perhaps you're not seeing the traditional police officer do 25 years of service and start collecting at 55. Um, but a lot of those programs are up for examination. Right. So, the, like and we're, we're even seeing fighting about it now in the stimulus uh, bill that's uh, been proposed by the Biden administration, uh, which includes billions and billions uh, to shore up pension funds in, in certain states. And th that's a perfect segue right there to the topic is if you have a politician that says, well, I don't want to touch those, those items, whether it be Social Security, Medicare or pensions, that people are so reliant on, or I immediately lose that voting populace. Is is debt kind of the only way out, or because right now I think you're seeing, by and large, trying to continue some of these rich benefits programs that people are enjoying, but afraid to jack up taxes. And so, if we're not doing either, and the expenses are going up, I guess this debt that we're seeing becomes so tremendous. Um, I guess at some point, does it really become a tipping point where you, you do have to cut benefits or raise taxes, or can you just keep kind of inflating this thing with more debt or more stimulus? Uh, the, the, other, the other way out is uh, uh, more immigration, right? So if we let in a, a large number of uh, immigrants of uh, working age, uh, you can change the ratios a little bit and uh, reduce the problem that way. Uh, I don't think that the levels of immigration that would be required to solve the problem would generally be acceptable to the American public, but it could be part of a solution. Yeah, and that's a really good point, but I think that would have to be a radical transformation if you look at... Uh you know, any of the stats that you have on social security that initially people retired for a year or two to collect. And you had, you know, two people paying FICA for every beneficiary. And now you have whatever those stats may read 40 to 45 people 
uh, or I'm sorry, you had 40 to 45 people paying into social security working per beneficiary. Now that's a number that's closer to two to one. You didn't need a tremendous amount of population <laughs> to yeah. kind of get back to where it was. Uh, uh, the, the other way out that I, I failed to mention is uh, faster productivity growth. Uh, uh, but we saw a surge in that uh, in the late 90s that ended in the 2000s. Uh, but it seems to have petered out. And uh, we don't understand productivity uh, growth well enough to be able to produce more of it or to really uh, even understand the forces that are generating productivity growth. Yeah, yeah, that and it just it seems like such a tall order when you look at just in two thousand. That doesn't seem that long ago. That, like I mentioned, debt to GDP was fifty nine percent, and now it's twenty years later, one hundred thirty percent. You know, you need a a lot of productivity if that was the one uh, kind of trick to right. get you back to homeostasis there. And, so, and I would say, in defense of the federal government on that count. Uh, uh, much of that, uh, uh, that growth was brought on by the 2008 recession and now uh, the pandemic. Uh, so I, I think that an extended return, and I believe this is possible, to a world uh, with 2% uh, GDP growth and 4% and unemployment, we can slowly bring that number down. Uh, but, uh, or at least stabilize it and stop it from growing further without too much pain. Okay. All right, good. I, I appreciate the, the insight there and uh, hopefully we didn't lose anyone. I know that, that it has a, just so many different elements to it to consider. Um, and that might be a good transition into what I wanted to spend some time on, which was the emphasis of our first episode of Economics 101 was capitalism versus socialism. And so to, to quote a poll that was done by uh, Pew Research in 2019, it showed that 55% of Americans had a negative outlook of socialism, while 42% of Americans expressed a positive view of socialism. So that gives you quite a divide there where you could see we're almost half and half. Uh, and furthermore, in that same study, it showed that young professionals in particular had a higher propensity for favoring socialism. Uh, and what I spoke about on our first episode that we did, again, was pointing out one of these disconnects where you see that you're seeing almost half the country accepting of socialism and that number being higher on young professionals. However, when, it, when young professionals were pulled of their favored career path, almost 90% of young professionals said that they favored entrepreneurship as a career path, which sounded <laughs> almost completely contradictory yeah. of what their peers are saying of favoring socialism. So perhaps can you share a little bit of, of your take as an economist on where we are right now uh, as a country becoming, I think, more accepting of the school of thought of socialism than ever, uh, at least in my knowledge. Uh, and is that warranted or is it a misunderstanding by the general population? Well, first, I, I loved your uh, statistics and your anecdote because it's completely consistent with the way that uh, I think about what's going on here. 
if we define socialism as, as uh, government ownership of the means of production, I, I see almost no support for that. I, I don't even see Bernie Sanders arguing for government ownership of the means of production. That is, the, the government should own the automobile companies or, uh, or the, the, the bank should be owned by the government or the airline should be owned by the government. That, that doesn't uh, uh, seem to garner much popular support, at least in the polling data that, that I've seen. Uh, but why, why then for, you know, I, perhaps maybe people are exaggerating what Bernie Sanders stands for AOC or um, some of these politicians that have gotten such traction as, yeah. as quote unquote socialists. Uh, would you, are you saying that they're not really that socialist as we're all making them out to be? Um, well, it, it depends on what you mean by socialism. Here, here's uh, some more, uh, uh, context or history, for, from at least from my perspective, uh, I think that uh, the U.S. Uh, economy is uh, far more capitalist today than it was in 1970. How so? That is, uh, during the uh, the late 70s and into the 80s, uh, banking and finance was almost completely deregulated. All areas of transport, so trucking, rail, airlines, they all used to have rate regulation by the federal government. Uh, all deregulated now. Uh, communications, that is, uh, 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 the telephone company used to have its rates set by the government. Now, uh, nobody sets cell phone rates except the cell phone companies. So, so that in, and, and finally, the energy sector. Uh, all sorts of uh, gasoline, natural gas, uh, uh, coal prices uh, were all regulated by the government uh, up, uh, up until the 1970s. Now, uh, market forces, uh, for the most part, uh, determine outcomes in the energy sector. But, and here's the, the but, uh, the, uh, the education sector, uh, the healthcare, and environment uh, have always been uh, heavily regulated. Perhaps the regulation in those three sectors is greater than it was in say 1972. But I think the bigger impact is that uh, those sectors themselves have uh, grown in relative importance since the 1970s. So education, healthcare and environment uh, uh, these are three areas where I think even relatively conservative economists like myself uh, recognize that there, there's an important government role, that is markets don't do that well in uh, uh, providing uh, key healthcare goods. And uh, as a result, we need to intervene in a variety of ways. And I think that it's, it's probably uh, not completely misleading uh, to call uh, things like Medicare and Medicaid or expansions of uh, something like Medicare and Medicaid under Obamacare, quote unquote, socialism. Okay. So, so uh, what we're think... left with is uh, what's the net impact? Because you have one set of forces moving in one direction 
and uh, one set of forces in the other, and, and I don't have a clear answer. Okay. So you believe that, that some, like we are a mixed economy here in America, and that some forms of socialism are not just acceptable, but they're, they're needed in the sense of such as healthcare? Well, I would say that the needed is a loaded term, but, but I think that there's widespread uh, public consensus among even people who are relatively conservative that the government has some role in providing education, healthcare, and environmental quality uh, to the public. Okay. Okay. And along those lines, because I think a lot of people identify America as the competitive capitalist uh, power of, of the world that's from, a, from maybe that negative standpoint that we're this ruthless capitalist society. But if you look at the 2020 Economic Freedom World Index, we're actually not even in the top five. Uh, according to them, the most capitalist uh, country in the world would be Hong Kong, followed by Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, uh, and then Australia. And then America, which is the biggest uh, compared to those, would come in at number six. So do people think we're more capitalist than we are? Ooh, I don't know. And anytime you're constructing some measure like economic freedom, you're typically building some sort of index. And the index attaches arbitrary weights to what are probably at a minimum six or seven different factors. So uh, what makes uh, Switzerland uh, more uh, uh, capitalist or free than the US? I, I don't know enough about the Swiss economy to say for sure, uh, but uh, I'll bet that they've got relative, uh, at least uh, compared to uh, standards of uh, the early 20th century, relatively high uh, uh, regulation of things like environmental goods. Uh, they've got healthcare provision and uh, universal education in the country of Switzerland. So uh, I don't know how that index is constructed. Uh, I, I do know that uh, most measures of labor market regulation that compare the US and Europe show that uh, US labor markets are far less regulated than, uh, than European uh, uh, labor markets. But uh, I'm guessing that also countries like uh, France and, and England uh, are also not in the top five in this index you just cited. No, they're not. So yeah. in, I guess there's a lot of ways that, that people could interpret you know, some of this, but I think the, the question a lot of people want to know, because there has been this sort of fanaticism with socialism, particularly amongst young professionals, uh, and I would say particularly over the past five to 10 years or so, a lot of the, the model that people point to as kind of this utopia would be Sweden. And doing some study on them, you could see that they're not entirely socialist, and they've actually gotten more conservative as time has gone on. Is there something in your studies or research over time that you could point to as like a model where socialism did work uh, for a sustained period of time? Is there, is there really a good example of that? Uh, work. Uh, well, work isn't in, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, 
and and I think as you rightly pointed out, uh, the uh, the Swedes uh, have uh, less government ownership of uh, the means of production than they did 50 years ago. Uh, I think you, you still have, I think what, what people think of when they point to, to Sweden is uh, more of this uh, cradle to grave provision of healthcare, education and job retraining. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know if, if uh, the U.S. could sustain the levels of government intervention in those sectors and the taxes that they'd uh, imply given current political values in the U.S., but I could be wrong. It could be that they're shifting. Okay. And I appreciate the opinion there because it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people point to. It's um, quite difficult to understand. And I think people want to kind of align themselves as either they are capitalist or they are socialist, just as if they're liberal or they're conservative. And then oftentimes when they pick that school of thought or that allegiance, it's hard to kind of be unseated from that school of thought. So I think that's having these conversations is certainly helpful. And this is a study, maybe last one I'll reference, that was done in 2019 uh, that was referenced in Forbes that showed the most socialist countries according to Americans. So it was a a poll done of Americans. And the number one most socialist economy was pointed to as China, number two, Venezuela, and then number Mm -hmm. three, Russia. And as an American, I think if you follow the news, these don't seem to be our, our best friends. Those three countries are certainly not role models for our economy. Yeah. So it, it, that's what I'm just always puzzled by is, I wouldn't say the fascination with socialism, but uh, that it, it seems like we kind of say one thing and then mean another sometimes um, when we're, we've got to be careful what we wish for, I suppose, uh, in one direction or the other. Well, I think that's an excellent point uh, in in that uh, people who uh, profess to be socialist, would they really want to make the U.S. economy more like the Chinese economy? Uh, There's a lot of uh, government uh, ownership of firms in in, uh, China. very uh, little in the way of um, Swedish style uh, cradle to grave retirement uh, benefits and healthcare. Hmm. And that, that uh, I, I would be surprised if, if uh, you, you polled people on the question, do you want to make uh, the U.S. economy more like the Chinese economy? Uh, to see whether you got answers that were different for uh, compared to uh, uh, the questions or the responses you got to a query on, uh, would you want to make the uh, the economy more the U.S. economy more socialist? I think there's a lot of uh, mislabeling, a lot of misunderstanding, and I think that's the only way uh, I can explain uh, 
the sort of uh, statistics that you've brought up and yeah. why it's so important that we have good definitions and, and get to discussions of the particulars. That is, do you want uh, the, uh, the US government to uh, set the rates uh, for airline travel, yes or no? Uh, do you want the US government to, to uh, provide uh, uh, expanded uh, aid to cities in support of education? Do you want to uh, raise or lower uh, the, uh, the age requirement to become a Medicare recipient? I think can you get away from uh, what, what seemed to be contradictory responses and misunderstandings perhaps built on competing definitions of the word of words like socialism? Yeah, and I, I think maybe to kind of conclude that thought, if we look at the biggest budget items that we talked about about 20 minutes ago, it was Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which are programs put together with some of that cradle to grave thought that, that you referenced with Sweden mm -hmm. of that I will get older and America will take care of me. Um, and now, granted, some of those are funded by our own taxes that we worked for and paid into those systems. But also a lot of that is funded by debt, of course, and that there are tremendous liabilities to both of those systems. So to adopt more socialist ideals and add maybe a, a third or a fourth program on top of the Medicare and the Social Security, it, won't they just become another topic that will say, how the heck can we ever afford this? Well, I think the short answer is yes, that, that is, we'll have that conversation. Uh, and uh, well, it's, that's playing out right now in the stimulus bill. That, that is, uh, the, uh, the Democrats want a much larger bill. Uh, the Republicans uh, are arguing the, uh, the U.S. economy is recovered, and we don't need to spend that much. Yeah. And that may be our last uh, conversation, if you don't mind just sharing a comment on, here we are, 2021 just entering the beginning of Biden's administration, he campaigned a lot on uh, raising taxes, um, raising the taxes on capital gains, raising the tax on corporations, raising our income taxes back to where they were under Obama, um, eliminating different perks such as the step up in basis, uh, while also increasing some tax credits like the child tax credit, health credits, even first time home buyer credits. Can you share just maybe some of your thoughts on his overall agenda, uh, what you think is fitting, uh, what you think is maybe unnecessary, or are there things that could be uh, harmful to the American economy? His overall uh, agenda is uh, an appeal to, to keep together this, uh, this current coalition that uh, now uh, fuels uh, Democratic uh, Party electoral success. Uh, that is uh, uh, these rich uh, coastal cities. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, the, uh, the tax bills will, will uh, pass. I can't think of a 
of a candidate, uh, Democrat or Republican, during my lifetime that didn't campaign on some tax changes. I also can think of only a couple instances where the tax changes promised by the candidate actually passed through the legislature. So I, I think it's a, a relatively low probability that uh, the, uh, the proposed changes to the tax code uh, will in fact uh, pass Congress. I think uh, the, uh, the primary uh, concern of the coalition behind uh, uh, Biden is a, a return to the, the status quo under Obama on globalization. That is, uh, uh, we want to uh, re-engage on these uh, trade agreements. We want to integrate uh, the U.S. economy uh, uh, more fully with the world economy. And uh, we want more international migration. Because uh, that's what fuels growth in these uh, a large uh, metro areas that form uh, Biden's base. And uh, that is exactly what uh, the, uh, the populists uh, uh, dislike and will fight against. And uh, I, I expect that that will be much more than changes to the tax code, the focus of political conflict in the next uh, two years. Got it. Got it. And just to clarify, Don, because I know you mentioned a few times that the affluent coastal metropolises is what got Biden into office. But wouldn't one argue that it wasn't that affluent city? It was the lower income to middle income people that were within that city that are his base, rather than just the affluent city as a whole. That's a good question. I, I'd have to go back and look at the data. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, the uh, a coalition of just uh, the the coastal elites uh, who benefit from expanded globalization is is uh, insufficient to win elections. Okay, and so they need other people to join that, that coalition. And, and this is in particular why I think there has been uh, uh, so much fighting between the populists and uh, the, the populist Republican party and uh, the Democrats over minority voters. And I expect that there'll be uh, a continued uh, conflict uh, uh, over uh, those voters, uh, because uh, to the extent that the populists uh, can garner a, a larger share of Black and Hispanic voters, they insulate themselves against charges of racism, at the same time, the 
coastal elites that uh, for the most part, at least in my view, will control the agenda for the Democratic Party, uh, need these voters because uh, nobody wants to vote uh, or, or be seen identifying with a party that just enunciates issues related to the interests of the coastal elites, that is globalization. Because uh, the globalization agenda isn't that popular nationwide. That is, uh, in general, uh, uh, most Americans want to see somewhat lower levels of immigration and uh, more controls on trade to protect American jobs. But uh, there are a number of people uh, in these large uh, coastal cities that uh, benefit uh, from the expanded uh, uh, globalization, that is uh, more, uh, more trade and uh, more migration, right? So that uh, one of the uh, first actions uh, of uh, Biden was to, to try to rejoin uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, uh, negotiate more trade agreements, uh, uh, cancel uh, uh, efforts uh, to uh, restrict trade. Hmm. Th that's a, a certainly a lot to take in for one episode. <laughs> yeah, and well, I think, yeah, so much of this, uh, like we said, economics invades every aspect of life certainly invades uh, politics and politics really is kind of this merging of economics but also social issues and people cast their vote you know for one reason or another or, or a combination of all of them um, but it's uh, it's it's so unique and as we talk about it in, in debate and converse like we are today it's just an incredible system that we have here that uh I think takes into account so many of these different factors and then kind of gives you a, you know, an administration or a, a leadership that is meant to address all of them when we just kind of isolate one issue such as economics. So, yeah. And it'll continue to evolve based on economic and political realities. Yep. Yep. And so this was fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on, Don. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch or that you just maybe would like to sign off here uh, and share with our listeners today? Uh, not that comes immediately to mind. Uh, I, uh, I believe we had a, a very wide-ranging conversation. And, and so that uh, I, I believe uh, I uh, touched on uh, the main points and uh, I would uh, end up... Uh, simply confusing matters by uh, trying to go back and reiterate things. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So I think that we can uh, end it there. And everyone that tuned in today, we appreciate you listening. And uh, what I would leave you with, and if you're like me, searching for a little bit more on, on any of these topics, whether it was debt, trade policy, the new administration, capitalism versus socialism, Keep tuning in because I know that they are very, very deep topics and we'll continue to elaborate on them in future episodes. But again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. And Don, thank you for coming on the show. We always appreciate your voice.
Thank you for inviting me. I, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you about these topics. Excellent, as did we. So we'll talk to you soon and everybody see you next week. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PASS, Guardian, or Coderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS. OSJ 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PASS, member FINRA SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PASS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Coderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PASS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number OK04194. Approval number 2021-122958, expiration date 623.